hidden assets is usually a term that covers over an anxiety. In most marriages, people have different responsibilities. Somebody does the groceries, somebody does the child rearing, taking the child to the doctor, somebody goes to work, both people may go to work, somebody's in charge of paying the mortgage, but you don't run a family, a marriage by committee, you run it by delegation of responsibilities between the people so that nobody's doing everything. And usually hidden assets is an expression of he or she on the other side had responsibility for this. I know what I remember randomly being brought to me, told to me over dinner one night or whatever it might be. But the truth of the matter is, this has not been my focus for the last X number of years. And I don't know where these are. They are hidden to me. I need help understanding that. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I am your host, Stacey Francis, and I am overjoyed that you are here listening today, making an investment in yourself. Today, we're going to be talking about hidden assets, and it's a topic that so many of our clients worry about and think about. Do they really understand? Do they really know their entire financial picture as they're going through? divorce. And today, James Guberman, our special guest, is going to be speaking to us about how to find hidden assets and how we ourselves can do some of this work, becoming empowered, becoming knowledgeable, and really setting us on the path to financial security. James has worked in this area for, well, many decades at Guberman and Associates. He is both a forensic accountant as well as a business valuation expert. And he works not only valuing small businesses and real estate entities, but also private equity situations. He brings to this an unbelievable background with a bachelor's from SUNY Bergen, an MBA and master's of business administration from Bigham University. We talk about so many different ways of hiding assets, whether it's stocks and bonds, it's offshore, it's cryptocurrency. Uh, He also shares at the end the key to unlocking hidden assets and sometimes even hidden expenses and using ATM charges to paint a picture of where the money is going and why. So make sure you stay to the end. We have so much that we're going to be going through and more. So excited that you are here to listen in to this podcast and even more pleased that we have such a fantastic expert such as James Guberman joining us today. James, it's great to have you here. And today we are talking about hidden assets and do they really exist? If so, how do you find them? And I have to say, this is one of my favorite topics because there's a little bit of a shrug.
Sherlock Holmes streak in me. I love to bust people doing bad things. And as you can imagine, I was the worst little sister in the world. My poor brother got busted so many times by me telling on him. I feel a little embarrassed. But the good news is, is that we're good friends. and It's all okay. But I'm so excited to have you here on Financially Ever After, James. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. And hidden assets is probably one of the most concerning to people, but also one of the most interesting topics because it really jives with the history of a relationship and where has their money gone Mm -hmm. and telling a story about that. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Well, I want to jump into that because you do come to this with a different background. And one of the things I remember us chatting about previously is that it's a story. You're spending where assets are. It paints a story. But tell me a little bit more about your background because you don't have the typical forensic accountant background to get to where you are today. No, I don't. Once upon a time, I studied history and Latin American studies and politics, which basically is storytelling. It's the story of how people and country and societies interact, have interacted in the past. It's looking at documents. And in my current line of work, I find that a lot of those skill sets are useful because when you're looking at a bank statement, as you just said, when you're looking at a brokerage account statement, People don't really think about it, but as you look through this stuff, I can suddenly say, okay, and here's where you went to France, or here's where you went to Italy. And that tells us something about how people spend, but also where things should be spent. While you're Mm -hmm. away, you're not paying for a doctor back home. That wouldn't jive because how could you go to that doctor? But that historical mentality and helping relate a story and make it compelling to people comes into testifying, talking to judges, and helping people really feel like they're heard, that my work actually expresses who and what their lives were. And when we do that, that's a good day. Individuals that come to you that sit down in your office or you're doing a Zoom with, because I know you guys work with individuals across the country, you know, when they talk about hidden assets, how does that conversation go? What are some of the questions that typical person has and why they're showing up to you in your office with these concerns? Hidden assets is usually a term that covers over an anxiety. In most marriages, people have different responsibilities. Somebody does the groceries. Somebody does the child rearing, taking the child to the doctor. Somebody goes to work. Both people may go to work. Somebody's in charge of paying the mortgage. But you don't run a family, a marriage by committee. You run it by delegation of responsibilities between the people so that nobody's doing everything. And usually hidden assets is an expression of he or she on the other side had responsibility for this. I know what I remember randomly being brought to me, told to me over dinner one night or whatever it might be. But the truth of the matter is, this has not been my focus for the last X number of years. And I don't know where these are. They are hidden to me. I need help understanding that. There's a more nefarious connotation of my soon-to-be ex is hiding money overseas. I need you to help me find it. Or there's cryptocurrency involved, which is the new sexy way of trying to hide stuff. What you find is that if you know how to read bank and brokerage account statements, most things are not hidden. The only 
truly hidden thing is something that never goes institutional. I get cash from Joe, take it across the street, and I buy whatever it is I buy. There's no paper trail associated with that because nobody actually bothers to take receipts anymore. That might be hidden. But most people's lives are in bank statements, and they can be Mm -hmm. reconstructed and they can be understood. But not everyone has developed the skill sets because our education system doesn't teach them. We don't learn how to read a brokerage account statement or a 401k statement anywhere. You learn that by trauma in school or in in work, I mean. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So when someone's coming to you, you know, they're concerned, is there anything that we can do? So if you are concerned that there might be hidden assets or maybe that you don't have the full picture, how do we empower ourselves to start to get a little bit more savvy about the whole history and the story of our spending and our assets and liabilities? So the first thing to do is you have to have documents. Mm-hmm. Whenever hidden assets comes up, the very first set of materials I ask for is checking, savings, brokerage account, retirement. In the last several years, I add to that list Venmo or PayPal or these other registers, and then tax returns. And now the question is, how many years, how much of this do you want to be digging through? Do you need to reconstruct a particular story? You suspect he or she has had an affair and you're looking for the money they might have spent on that, or you're looking for five years ago, I knew we had a million dollars and today we only have 800 and I'm looking for what explains that gap. Then I might ask for five years. The bigger issue is those bank records. Unless you have a pack rat who's saving all these statements in either paper or electronic form, you're generally not going to get to go back more than seven years. So for a 20-year marriage, I will be upfront with somebody. There's going to be information we can't reconstruct, not because anybody was hiding this, but because it's just lost to the ages unless somebody actually stored this material. Every once in a while, you get somebody whose attic is fire hazard because they have 20 years worth of bank statements and tax returns, and it's all there. That's great. And we can now do the work. (laughs) Let's not talk to your fire insurance, you know, homeowners insurance about that because they're probably not happy either. <laughs> and so when we're thinking about if there are hidden assets or, you know, what you're talking about is not necessarily hidden, just don't have the full picture. The number one thing is getting as many statements as you can, as far back as you can too. Correct. But one of the things that, and I don't want to be negative in any way, but I do find that some people come to us wanting to go back 20 years and look that far. But you tell me, but I I tend to see that if something nefarious typically is happening, it's usually once the marriage really starts to break down. And so often it's more, more recent versus those early days where you're newly married and growing your family and everything is honky dory. It's often when there become problems. Do you see that as well? I do. If you can talk to someone, you can find out that there was a good time in the marriage, a stable period where there was a true partnership where people were working together. I find that that generally indicates less likelihood that someone felt motivated 
to hide something. Hiding an asset overlaps greatly with fraud. There has to be an opportunity and a motivation to do that. And in divorce, that motivation, if I'm going to try to hide something, it's because I don't want to share this. I know this is breaking down and I want to move something off the table and try to make it go away. So that first conversation also has to include when did things start to break down? Yeah. Sometimes it is a long time ago and we're going to have to deal with a conversation where that information might not be perfectly available. There might have been a a hiccup in a marriage that they reconciled and they tried again and now it's 5 years later. Well, the motivation and the beginning of that financial separation might have been during that hiccup. That hiccup could itself be a loss of marital money. But if it's too long ago, we'll do the best we can. We'll look for echoes of something. We can trace through the income on tax returns and kind of say there was this much capital gain, interest, and dividend income, and that might indicate a certain level of assets. But when we get five years later, you know, probability says that there's not enough money here anymore. Something went wrong. And we can try to probe into that. Did money leave? Was there a really bad investment? Did you, like me, own Peloton stock and forget to sell it when COVID ended? There are explanations for why value goes away, but there's also the possibility that money did leave. I know we're talking about hidden assets, but there are other things that can happen. And I'd love for you to to help me kind of fill in the blanks of all the things that to kind of keep our ears open for. But I've seen all of a sudden loans to the in-laws saying that, you know, that was a gift, but guess what? Now it really was a loan. So I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen also individuals who collude with their employer, especially if they're a business owner, and put off bonus payments or types of compensation that they might receive. What are some of the other things, those naughty things? And I don't want this to be a... <laughs> make everyone who's listening paranoid. <laughs> and I feel so bad, but I also just want to make sure that we're not just talking about the moving offshore because such a small percentage of what really happens in reality. Yeah. Well, so those loans and other things like that, that might be, we can now document, we know money left, what we'll call the marital universe. There's no longer cash or there's no longer stock. It left. Courts typically will look at that and they'll say, okay, but if it's now a loan, you lent your mom $100,000. Now you're getting divorced. You're trying to say this money is not part of the story. But the receivable, the entitlement to be repaid, that's still part of the marriage. The loan was funded with money. While that cash might not be in a checking account that we can divide, the courts and the, the ultimate settlement might say, let's solve for this by giving you more of something else. Perhaps you want to keep the marital home and he has lent this money to his parents or his sibling or his nephew, whatever it might be. He'll walk out with the right to receive those loans being repaid in exchange for you keep the home or something Mm -hmm. of that nature, Mm -hmm. the values balance. And James, have you seen the opposite where the in-laws gave a gift? let's say $100,000 to help them purchase their first home. 
I have a case right now where that's the case. And all of a sudden throughout this divorce, the in-laws are saying that was not a gift. You owe us $100,000. And so now the lawyers are arguing about what is the marital value actually of the house. Yeah, I love this topic because, of course, when you get a loan like that, loan in quotes. <laughs> we're we're um, doing quotes, everyone that can't see us. We're doing yeah. quotes. <laughs> when mom and dad gave you that money 10 years ago to buy the home, they actually usually had to sign a note saying this is a gift without any intention of ever being repaid because the bank actually wanted that document as part of their record because they wanted to ensure that you, the yeah. person buying the home, have equity in that property. That would be part of the mortgage process. That makes 100% sense. Correct. The other thing to look for is, was it $100,000 or was it $30,000 or some figure that indicates the consumption of the annual gifting exclusion? Because that looks and speaks more like it's a gift rather than a loan. It yeah. looks more like what the government actually wants you to do. And then quite simply, look at the alleged loan, its terms. If mom and dad are lending money and they expect this to not be a gift, they have to do certain things. They have to charge a minimum amount of interest that depends on the length and duration of that loan. And this is published information from the government, from the IRS, every month. There's a minimum applicable federal rate that you have to charge. And every once in a while, the rates are wrong. You used the rate from 2016, but you didn't get the money in that year. Somebody went over and tried to paper this thing after the fact. So it's not contemporaneous. It looks wrong. That mm. might be reason to say this is not real. But I want to go back to, you asked me a question about the, the small business owner or the small business employee where there's a possibility of manipulating the company's earnings or cash flows in order to move things around in order to try and prevent the X from getting a share of it. And that's really a small business concept. If you yeah. have a spouse working for Google, Google <laughs> not is happening. not doing this for anybody. A publicly traded company does not manipulate its earnings or delay the award of restricted stock or deferred compensation. Yep. There's no single employee out there who's worth enough to Google or Microsoft or ExxonMobil, whatever it might be, to risk an SEC problem. Where you get into it is privately held companies and typically small businesses where there's no outsider. There's no audit being done. There's no external investors. I don't have money from a private equity firm that I'm relying on to build my business because I can't manipulate my earnings if I'm trying to also raise money from investors. That's yeah, yeah. a conflict. And that's where you're going to want a fraud examination, a business valuation of that property to look at that small business and actually try to figure out what are the cash flows available to the owner? Because just because I decide to leave 50000 a 100000 whatever it might be in my business doesn't mean it's not part of my, as the owner, discretionary earnings. And in a divorce, you could treat that excess that I tried to hide as cash and just yeah. 
yeah. park it. That's where you need business document skills that not everyone does. And I'll say this with a grin on my face, even the small business owner doesn't necessarily have those skills all the time because they're running it kind of day to day, week to week. And as long as there's enough cash in the checking account to pay all the bills, they're not really thinking about the grand picture of what's the value and what's my earnings. They give this pile of paper, digital files now to their accountant at the end of the year. And they say, how quickly can you do my tax return? And the poor CPAs that do tax returns look at their clients and say, I need to go get a drink first because this is a mess. You have that. And you can have hundreds of thousands of dollars of earnings in those kind of businesses. Very lavish lifestyles where the accountants are reconstructing this stuff nine and 12 months later to make tax returns. And those are not going to be the best tax returns. They're just, they're not because no one was doing quarterly accounting, monthly accounting. You want a valuation expert for that. You need yeah. somebody there because I can talk to you and teach you in an hour or two how to read your personal statements. And then you might not necessarily need to talk to me if you're going to go for a settlement and you feel you can find the information. And this is what you want to do. Business documents are a different animal. And you will likely want to have somebody on your team to help with that. I'll share with you, James. So, you know, I was my own bookkeeper for the first 10 years of running Francis Financial and Savvy Ladies. And, and it was truly because I didn't have two cents to pay someone. Now, thank goodness, the charity is doing beautifully. At, and so is Francis Financial. And so I have a fantastic, unbelievable, great bookkeeper who gives me literally weekly reports. It's been now 20 years and I still need her and I still need her expertise. I would never, and my life is all about finance, but I would never ever have that role be just me, let alone I would be completely unqualified to value the business. And I did a business valuation myself just to kind of see what the firm was. And we're looking at rolling out a restricted stock unit program here. So we needed a value and hired a great business valuation expert. So that's key. And I do have to say, it's really important as well to not believe your spouse who's saying to you, there's no real value here. It's just me. Maybe that's the case, but it's better to talk to someone like you to double check. Does that really seem right? So especially in New York, we get that argument a lot for professional services type people. Yep. There's no value but for me. If I went away, my company goes away. If you go away, your company is no more. The earnings, the new business development, it's all relationship-based and it's me. But the court still says you've assembled a group of assets and a group of people and a skill set. And the totality of this is got a value. And we value it using the theory of business valuation, even though to a certain extent, we all kind of agree that this is the value to you. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. you took your company, Stacey, and you tried to transition it to somebody, probably not going to have the same value. That's what exit planning and transitions are all about. And that value to you, the value to the holder, not necessarily marketable, but it's still something that the court is going to look at and consider in its decisions. Yeah. And when we're talking about valuation, we're talking about what is the value of this business? 
as part of that process and pouring over the business financials and the tax returns, can the professional you work with also be looking to see if there are some irregularities? Absolutely. Such as trying to depress the earnings because in a case that this happened with me, he doubled the income of his mistress who he hired and then was taking her on these lavish trips and jewelry. And so we realized that that's wasteful dissipation, meaning that, you know, those are assets that should not, marital assets should not have been spent on her. And, you know, our client was due to some of them, but also he was you know on purpose finding ways to show that there was less money and he could pay himself only a little compared to what he was paying himself to three, four years ago. This happens a lot, especially with those small businesses where you have only one person at the top or maybe two friends at the top. You can very easily manipulate earnings if you chose to. And that valuation analysis, speaking of a hidden asset, is also going to be looking at what use of business cash might actually represent personal usage. So it's very important to have a conversation with those experts about how's your cell phone paid for? How's your car paid for? Different things like that, because you might find those buried inside a business profit and loss statement that the business is paying for these, even though the car never got used for anything but going to the grocery store, whatever it might be. Trips. You you mentioned the, the lavish trips. Where are they going? Why are they going there? How long did they go? I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that somebody goes to Europe or New Orleans or Las Vegas, wherever it might be, for a three-day conference, and they're there for a week or more. But the business still paid for the airplane tickets and the hotel. And I've seen that in often, not only, so they have the business paying for that, but then on their statement or net worth or their financial affidavit for their budget, they're putting those expenses too. So they're saying here's my lease for the car that I personally have to pay for. And then they're showing the income from the business minus the business paying for the lease, essentially double dipping. And I know from the Seinfeld episode from decades ago, you just never double dip, whether it's dipping cracker or in this case, dipping financially. But really important for us to just be aware of these things and check with an expert. Are there other areas or other assets where you see more often where people can easily have share a, a lower value for them than they really are. Do you see anything else that we should be aware of? One thing that's always of interest is ATM withdrawal. Somebody goes to the ATM, and now bank statements are fantastic. They tell you exactly where the ATM is. And I remember one really interesting case we had 10 plus years ago where they lived in Brooklyn, jobs were in Manhattan, but there were these random ATM withdrawals every seven to 10 days in Queens. And it Hmm. turned out that if you want to talk about hidden assets or liabilities in this case, there was a second family and he was taking cash out. But the only reason this came to light is we put together a list of all these ATM withdrawals. And we said, why are you in I'm going to say it was Long Island City or something like that. I don't remember. But why were you there? What was going on? And back in the day, dad would come home with a pile of cash and say, here's the money for the groceries and everything. And today, a lot of relationships are still have that, but they also have the credit cards and everything's on the credit cards. But if you're trying to hide that 
external relationship and money, you do it in cash because the only trail is the ATM. And this particular individual was taking enough money out that they didn't want to ride the subway with it in their pocket. So it was noticeable. Yeah. The ATM withdrawals paint such an amazing story in history. And and just following that, we found people who Googled a, a strip club in the area and found that the credit card charges coincided with the ATM withdrawals across the street at that chase. You know, and I mean, and it is what it is. There's no judgments, but I'm going to correct that. There's one judgment at this point in this day and age. Don't use an ATM that's going to charge you a fee. It's like a red flag because that is <laughs> an true. indication of some kind of desperation. I need this cash now. I can't walk the extra two blocks to my local to bank. To my local bank. That's or, true. That's I didn't true. think this through ahead of time and I didn't get my cash at my usual ATM. Yeah, yeah, that's true. This, so if you're seeing a withdrawal instead of for $500, $2.50. I'm going to look at that. I want to know what ATM you used and why. Things I never thought about. You hinted at this before about cryptocurrency. It's much more frequent invested in. To be honest, sometimes people don't even mean to hide it, but they've lost their, what they call their key. They don't have access. Their wallet key key to be able to actually get into it. But Often, cryptocurrency doesn't show up on a tax return in the same way that stock dividends, interest from bonds, capital gains. So if you don't know, how would you know if your spouse has crypto? There's two type of cryptocurrency investors at this point. There's the hobbyist individual of today that's using Coinbase or Gemini, one of the exchanges. Yeah. And at the end of the day, those are traceable now. Yeah. Because in the yep. same way that a wire transfer from my checking account to my brokerage account, I can see that. I can identify it. And then you can then tell a lawyer, we need to ask for the Coinbase account. Those are a completely different animal from the individual that has what I'll call off exchange cryptocurrency, which is possible. That's the, in the day, that was the people who did the Bitcoin mining. Yep. So they have a wallet on their computer and there's a key. And I will tell you, we had the situation because my husband had three Bitcoins and he came to me sheepishly and said, I can't remember the key. And I looked at him and I said, at the time they were like $50,000 each, right? $150,000. I was like, guess what, hon? I love you. Go find the key. I don't know where you need to find it. Check your pockets. Obviously it's not in his pockets. It's a, you know, it's a code, but yeah, I mean, they, they are out there and on hard drives and things like that. But I do find that there's fewer people that are doing that. They tend to be more so on these exchanges. Is that right? That's my experience also. Everyone has this mystique around cryptocurrency from what I'll call the dark ages of the concept where it was not on these exchanges, where it was much more freewheeling. But a lot of this is now, if not properly regulated, at least documented. I mean, I've seen people transfer hundreds of thousands of dollars over into a cryptocurrency account and then try to make private equity investments. It's pretty obvious what's going on. Nobody can pull it off in the same way that I think they can with that hidden wallet, that lost wallet key. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about or that we skipped or, you know, that we should be informed about? 
The biggest concept with hidden assets is recognizing that what is hidden to you, discoverable in most cases, that you just need to know how to shine the right light onto it, how to read brokerage statement. Mm-hmm. Brokerage mm-hmm. statements are terribly confusing. They list they assets over here, activity over here. If you're cursed and you have multiple currencies in there, you have multiple cash reports because you have euro and dollars and pounds, whatever it might be, and they all relate to each other. And sometimes you have different kinds of US dollars because they'll put it in a federally insured account versus a not account, and you don't necessarily know what's going on. Learning to read them is the first step towards making something not hidden to you anymore. And it can be intimidating, but I really think that is critical because that partnership broke down, that marriage broke down. And in the same way that you don't trust the person on the other side of the aisle anymore, you now need their skill set. You have to replace that. And that can be with folks like you and I that you're going to supplement into your team to help you. But not everybody wants to be paying for forensic accounting services for the next 10 years. That's not their universe. They just need a little bit of help and a little bit of develop the skill sets to know what they're reading. But don't hesitate to use that during the divorce. In a divorce, if you don't have those skill sets, get the team, get the individual. People like me are more than happy to help you learn how to read these statements because we're going to help you develop that understanding that you know where everything is or maybe 90% of it is what you're going to have walking out of this divorce. But you don't want to be paying me to do skills that you need in the future. You need to develop that. Such wise, wise, wise advice. And for all of you listening, James is all about empowering and is one of our most active, long-serving board members on Savvy Ladies and has volunteered countless hours helping us with all of our finances, making sure that Savvy Ladies is doing everything right and making sure that message of empowerment, helping women learn about money, get savvy about money, it's really powerful. And for any of you listening that are interested in Savvy Ladies, you can go to the website, Savvy Ladies, S-A-V-V, remember there's two Vs, SavvyLadies.org. And we have dozens and dozens of live webinars and those that are recorded, as well as a fantastic helpline where you can go. But James, please tell us how can our listeners reach out to you? Because I can guarantee that every woman who's listening right now has a couple questions that would be great to bounce off of you to see, does this make sense for me to investigate, to move forward? And what would those next steps be? Simplest way is email for me, and that is James, J-A-M-E-S, at Guberman Advisors, G-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. There's a website with our contact information there also, but in this day and age of COVID and work from home, the email's on my phone, the phone goes with me everywhere. If I don't respond to you immediately, I will definitely get to you in within a day or two if I can. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're unbelievably responsible. And for all of you listening out there, I've had the pleasure to work directly with James and his team for clients and they do a fantastic job and they're honest and they're ethical. And it just, 
it's really wonderful to have had you here too and get to share you with our wonderful Financially Ever After listener base. So thanks for being here, James. And thank you to all of you for joining to learn more about what can be a pretty anxiety-provoking, tough topic. But I know that I feel more empowered, more knowledgeable. And my hope is that you do too. Thanks for coming, James. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice of you to join us today. And I love how we ended the podcast talking about empowerment because that is what you need to take away. You can learn this. Often hidden assets are not actually hidden. It's just having the knowledge and the understanding of reading statements to see what is really there or what's not there and why. And James also shared about putting together your team. And that team definitely could be someone like James, a forensic accountant, someone to find those hidden assets, a business valuation expert like James and his team to actually value a business if you're concerned about money being hidden in it or just that the value of it is not truly being disclosed to you properly. Because pretty much every single business, including mine, has a value. It's not just about it being the person in charge and that they leave, it's not valuable. Talking about a team, if you have worries about your long-term financial security and possibly making mistakes during the divorce process, please let us know. We have worked with hundreds of individuals just like you, mapping out your financial future from where we are today to 5, 10, 20, even 30 years out, giving you peace of mind and understanding about what assets you should take, what you can afford, and what those important steps are to put you on the path to financial security. If you have questions, please do reach out to me. My email is Stacy S. T-A-C-Y at francisfinancial.com. You can also visit our website and we have a whole host of great information about divorce that you need to know. And you can go to our website at www.francisfinancial.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you in two weeks.